Let's pray. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a a blessing and privilege to stand before you today. It's a blessing and privilege to be part of this Tyndale community. I thank God often for this place. I am blessed by wonderful colleagues on the faculty who are not only gifted and brilliant scholars, but also men and women of the church, whose highest aim is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. These are salt-of-the-earth people behind me, and I'm grateful for them. Along with our dedicated staff and administration, all of whom love the Lord and are here because they want to see every single student that comes through our doors flourish in their divine calling. And I am routinely humbled by the tremendous dedication, ingenuity, intelligence, and strength of character that I see in those students. It is a tremendous privilege to have the opportunity to play some small part in their formation. I'm also privileged and blessed to serve the Wesleyan family of churches. This is it's my family. When you pursue a life of scholarship, you know that it might take you anywhere. I used to tease Samantha when I was in graduate school that we might end up in Texas. That was sort of the last place on earth she wanted to go. Sorry if you're from Texas. But to be here at home serving my own tradition is more than I could have asked for. And I'm grateful for the way the sponsoring denominations have supported this chair now for 25 years and for the way the Wesley Studies Committee has supported me in particular in these past six years. And finally, I'm privileged to be associated with the legacy of Bishop uh, Donald and Mrs. Bastian, two remarkable servants of Christ whose ministry left a lasting mark on the church in Canada and the United States and who have always had an encouraging word for me when they see me. And I'm grateful for them and the other members of the Bastion family whom I've come to know in the past few years. In the spring of 1739, John Wesley was disturbed to find his friend George Whitfield preaching in the open air to the miners near Bristol. The practice unsettled Wesley because, as he wrote in his journal... I had always been so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it was not done in a church. Wesley was not a natural innovator. But he soon saw, however, that the workings of God's grace through this seemingly disturbing practice needed to outweigh his objections of decency and order. And so he wrote these memorable words on April the 2nd in his journal. At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoining the city to about 3,000 people. I submitted to be more vile. He's quoting from the King James translation of the story of David dancing before the ark, which says, uh, David says, I, I will yet be even more vile than thus and will base mine, be base in mine own sight. 
So here was this fussy Oxford fellow throwing off his sense of decency for the sake of the gospel and for these people who probably would not have come to hear him preach in a church. Even 20 years later, he confessed that he was still uncomfortable with what he called field preaching. On Monday and Tuesday evening, I preached abroad near the Kielman's Hospital to twice the people we should have had at the house. What marvel the devil does not love field preaching, neither do I. I love a commodious room, a soft cushion, a handsome pulpit, but where is my zeal if I do not trample all these underfoot in order to save one more soul? God often left John, led John Wesley to do things he didn't want to do. He once wrote that he and his brother Charles had been swept along into this revival by the providential hand of God and led to do things which, if they had known about them beforehand, they would have thought worse than death. (laughs) To their credit, they discerned the triumphs of God's grace in the midst of developments that brought scorn and ridicule upon them. They understood that God's grace is always transformative and it transforms us into the likeness of Christ, the one scorned and rejected by men. The critics of early Methodism saw it as an upstart movement of unlearned, unwashed, and uncultured fanatics. And yet, at the first Methodist conference, Wesley and his fellow laborers made the following statement, what may we reasonably believe to be God's design in raising up the preachers called Methodists? Even Methodist was a term of derision that they took and owned it for themselves. To reform the nation, and in particular the church, and to spread scriptural holiness throughout the land. It was a remarkable thing to say at the time. (laughs) Really? These people? These people are going to reform the nation? Not many were wise. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And yet, and yet, it was precisely through these humble instruments that God displayed so vividly the triumphs of his grace. John Wesley has been called an optimist of grace. It's not that he was naive about the problem of sin. The longest theological work he produced was a defense of a traditional doctrine of original sin. He thought it was an absolute essential of the Christian faith. No, he did not have a weak view of sin, but he had a strong view of grace. God's universal grace had work in all people, all sufficient to make even the foulest clean, to empower all who believe on the journey towards perfect love of God and neighbor. John Wesley was an optimist of grace because he believed that God's grace could triumph in places where other people didn't even give it a chance. Wesley believed God's grace could triumph amongst the poor. His concern for the poor was long life, was lifelong, and he believed Methodism was created especially for the poor. The rich, the honorable, the great, we are thoroughly willing to leave to you, he wrote in his farther appeal to men of reason and religion. Only let us alone with the poor, the vulgar, the base, the outcasts of men. And while the poverty of early Methodism is sometimes being exaggerated, 
there is truth behind it. One of the leading contemporary Methodist historians has written, Wesley did not have to search out the poor. They sat right in front of him in the benches of his preaching houses. And so he started multiple initiatives designed to relieve the misery of suffering humanity, providing food, clothing, and shelter to widows and orphans, establishing a loan program for struggling manufacturers, setting up schools for children who had no access to education, publishing a wide variety of literature at low cost. Early Methodist books were notoriously cheaply produced because he wanted them to be available. And if people couldn't afford them, he would give them away and beg the money to pay for them himself. Hiring doctors and apothecaries and establishing free medical clinics and dispensaries for the sick. But helping the poor was not just about a good deed. It was about holiness. It was about conformity to Christ. In the 1760s, Wesley began a long correspondence with a Miss J.C. March, a wealthy convert to Methodism. Miss March was bothered that Methodism brought her into contact with so many unrefined people. She really struggled with that. And Wesley's response was to urge her to press on through her discomfort in pursuit of Christlikeness. He wrote this to her. Creep in amongst these, in spite of dirt and in hundred disgusting circumstances, and thus put off the gentlewoman. Do not confine your conversation to genteel and elegant people. I should like this as well as you. But I cannot discover a precedent for it in the life of our Lord or any of his apostles. My dear friend, let you and I walk as he walked. Wesley taught that we do such works of mercy, not only in the hope that God's grace might triumph in the life of the poor, but that it might triumph over our own hard-hearted love of comfort and ease. Even more than ministering to the poor, Wesley wanted to empower the poor. He preached his message of holy living, which had often been preached only to the literate classes. He took it to the struggling miners and weavers and potters, laborers, and he invited them to join him in ministry. Many of the early Methodist preachers came from very humble circumstances. Most had little education, a few were even illiterate. Many more were actually very intelligent people who simply had not had access to education. And Wesley's licensing of these tradesmen to preach was not an indication that he did not value theological education. From the very first conference of his preachers, he was musing about a seminary, but it just never came to be. They never had the opportunity. But in the meantime, he designed an ambitious program of personal study for them. He provided cheap editions of classic works for their libraries. Everything from the post-apostolic fathers to medieval mystics to pietists and Puritans, not to mention resources on languages, history, natural philosophy. He instructed his preachers to spend six to seven hours each morning in reading, reflection, and writing. Far from dumbing down the ministry and employing these lay preachers, he sought to empower ordinary people, push them to do all they could within their power to equip themselves intellectually. But lest they thought, lest they should think 
that their study of Greek and Latin was meant to further their social advancement. Wesley admonished them, do nothing as a gentleman. You have no more to do with this character than with that of a dancing master. You are the servant of all, therefore be ashamed of nothing but sin. Not of fetching wood if time permit or drawing water, not of cleaning your own shoes or your neighbor's. Sounds like Dr. Nian's prayer. The purpose of their studies was not social aspiration, but greater usefulness in the service of Christ. And God's grace did indeed triumph dramatically and mightily through their service. John Lenton, who's written the definitive study on John Wesley's preachers, uses this telling example. He says, when Wesley sent the first two preachers to America... They were a former cobbler and an illegitimately born ex-farm laborer. They began a church that would sweep the continent. Perhaps more surprising still, given his context, was that John Wesley believed that God's grace could triumph in the ministry of women. Women had always been disproportionately prominent in Methodism, and from an early date, he began to involve them in leadership, appointing them to lead small groups, to pray publicly, roles which were unusual for women at that time. Wesley summarized and rejected the prevailing social attitudes towards women in his late sermon on visiting the sick. He wrote this, Indeed, it has long passed for a maxim that many, with many, that women are only to be seen, not heard. And accordingly, many of them are brought up in such a manner as if they were only designed for agreeable playthings. But is this doing honor to the sex? Or is it a real kindness to them? No. It is the deepest unkindness. It is horrid cruelty. And I know not how any woman of sense and spirit can submit to it. And he said this, Let all you that have it in your power assert the right which the God of nature has given you. Yield not to that vile bondage any longer. You as well as men are rational creatures. You like them were made in the image of God. You are equally candidates for immortality. You too are called of God as you have time to do good unto all men. Be not disobedient to the heavenly calling. Beginning in the 1760s, some of these holy women such as Sarah Crosby and Mary Bazanquet found themselves called to do good to others by publicly sharing the word. Cautiously, as he saw this ministry bear much fruit for the kingdom, Wesley came around to endorsing some of these women as Methodist preachers. Now, it's true he never contemplated female ordination. He supported the preaching of women as an extraordinary ministry by special calling, not an ordinary ministry of the church. But significantly, that was the same argument he used for the support of his lay male preachers. They were also unordained and whom he described as having an extraordinary call to the ministry. The Methodist revival was built upon the exploits of some unlikely characters, the poor, tradesmen, women preachers, people with little influence, little standing. To the eyes of the flesh, they did not look like much, but to the optimist of grace, they were a force for reforming the nation. The triumphs of God's grace are often little regarded by the world because they are the triumphs of the God of Calvary. 
The God whose power is made known in weakness, who chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, whose victory came through humiliation and seeming defeat, and who calls us now to follow him on the path of self-emptying love and sacrifice. True Christianity has often been despised, but in this we are not above our master. This was a difficult talk to prepare, I confess, because there are so many things I wanted to say. There are so many things I could say about John Wesley. I could talk about his scholarly exploits at Oxford, how brilliant he was, his mastery of several languages, how he could quote, quote patristic and classical sources from memory. I could have argued that he was the greatest theologian of his generation in the English-speaking world. I could have tried to argue that he's one of the greatest of all time. And I believe all of that is true. The one thing I want you to remember today about John Wesley is that he was a great witness to the triumphs of God's grace. Even over his own expectations and prejudices. Even when triumph required that he submit to be more vile. So Wesley's challenge for us today is this. Embrace the optimism of grace. Don't ever look in any person and think they are beyond the reach of God's grace. Don't ever look in any group of people and think that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. Don't ever look at any part of your own life and think that it is beyond the reach of God's grace. And if you are someone who is looked upon as weak or unintelligent, if you are a person who is despised in this world in any way, hold fast to the message of the cross. It is the power of God. And through that power, you might be the very instrument that God will choose to shame the wise and the strong of this age.